Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Border Podcast. This podcast explores the humanitarian response along the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. My name is Brian Strasberger. And I'm Joe Noya. We're with the Del Camino Jesuit Border Ministries located in the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. This podcast aims to humanize the migrant experience by sharing stories from our ministry and highlighting some of the amazing work that people are doing along the border and throughout the country. The Jesuit Border Podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Let's begin. Vamos! In this episode, we're going to talk about saying yes. We'll be interviewing Pastor Abraham Barberi, who is pastor of the Comunidad Esencia Urbana in Matamoros, Mexico, and director of Ministerio Una Misión. Stay tuned for that, but first, let's talk about a couple of experiences in our ministry where an opportunity presented itself, and whether we knew what we were getting into or not, we said yes. I think the first story that comes to mind is one day when we were celebrating Mass at the Humanitarian Respite Center in McAllen, Texas, where we go twice a week and visit with people on the U.S. side of the border. You know, before the Mass, one of the common things we do is do a roll call for countries. Uh, Raise your hand if you're from Honduras, and people raise their hand, and everybody applauds. Raise your hand if you're from Venezuela, everybody applauds. Near the end of that time, I always ask, are there any countries that I haven't mentioned after going through the roll call of, of most of the countries we're familiar with migrants coming from? And there was this young woman standing very close to where Father Flavio and I were, and she said, Iran. (laughs) (laughs) That's a new one. (laughs) That was a new one. Yeah. So did I hear that correctly? Did she just say Iran? (laughs) Like Iran? (laughs) And so, of course, I was uh, caught my interest. And after Mass, I went to go speak to her. She was sitting uh, on on one of the uh, mattress pads on the ground, and she introduced herself as Hajar, and it's difficult because I don't speak any Farsi or Persian, the native language of Iran, and she didn't speak any Spanish and only a few words of English. So, of course, we started communicating with Google Translate. And that allowed me to hear a little bit of her story. She was traveling with her her two-year-old child, as I kept referring to him as. (laughs) She told me it was a son, but gosh, it was really tough to... I don't know. I was having such a hard time. I was like, you're child right here. <laughs> you gotta play. Your offspring. <laughs> I mean, had very, very, very light eyes and long hair Super, and a fair complexion. Uh, but anyway, her Super son, androgynous kid. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely, lovely little boy. And so she was traveling with him, but she was also traveling with her mother. She had fled Iran uh, with her mom. They had flown through Turkey into South America and then traveled north on this very difficult and long journey. But when they entered the United States, the, the older mother got separated from Hajar and her son, who were uh, given paperwork and released into the United States. The mother was held in an ICE detention facility. Well, Hajar had no idea where her mom was and had no way to communicate with her because her mom uh, didn't have a phone. And so I reached out to a local lawyer friend to try to see if we could get into the ICE detention facility uh, database to see if we could track down where this mother was. And it took a few days, but they were eventually able to get where Hajar and mom were able to talk and speak. And Hajar was able to give her a a phone number that they could be in touch with and that sort of a thing. And so that gave her some sense of relief. 
But Hajar still had no contacts in the United States. She was very determined to go to Los Angeles. But here she was, caring for a child, waiting at the HRC, trying to figure out what to do while her mom was in an ICE detention center. So what I did is I decided to just reach out to a group of advocates here locally to see, does anyone know any contacts for an Iranian migrant? I just, I didn't know what the odds were that we'd have any luck with that. Well, it turns out someone knew uh, a woman named Mother Samira, who is an Iranian Episcopalian priest in the Dallas area who specifically works with Iranian migrants. I thought, well, this is the perfect contact. I put them in touch with one another. They can speak in their native language together and communicate. Mother Samira was very helpful in kind of explaining some of the situation that was going on with her mom being detained and also offered a welcome for her and her son to come up to the Dallas area and stay. I thought, this sounds perfect. I think the job is done. Well, it turns out it wasn't because Hajar was very, very determined to go to Los Angeles. And why? Well, I thought, why could this possibly be? So I Google searched Iran and Los Angeles. And it turns out if you Google search Iran and the U.S. in general, you're going to find out that L.A. is the place to go. It's got the largest Iranian population outside of Iran. In fact, uh, Iranians like to refer to Los Angeles as Tehran Hiles, combining Tehran, the capital of Iran, with Los Angeles. So no wonder she had wanted to go to L.A. I mean, then again, who doesn't want to go to L.A.? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, we are able to find an organization that will help her get plane tickets for her and her son to go L.A., despite all our persistence of saying, why not try Dallas? <laughs> and so the day before she leaves, she says, thank you for the help in getting me the, the ticket to, for us to be able to get to Los Angeles, uh, but we still don't have a place to stay. Would you mind contacting any of these places because I don't speak English? And she sends me a list of homeless shelters that she found on a Google map search of the city of Los Angeles. Well, unfortunately, shelters don't work like that. You don't just call them up and schedule a, a date and time for a woman and her son to arrive Make a reservation. and check in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they'll be checking in uh, yeah, tomorrow <laughs> afternoon and would like to stay for an indeterminate amount of time. Actually, turns out most shelters, no one answers their phone. That's what I found after trying to call a handful of them. So, I, I mean, I was feeling kind of concerned with her for her. Like, what is going to happen when she gets to L.A. with nowhere to stay? Well, she was uh, not... Uh, as phased by that as I thought she should be. And I reached out to her uh, a few hours after she got there, maybe it was a day later, and she said, oh yeah, I'm staying in a hotel here. Uh, I just walked up to a police officer in the airport at LAX, and he was Iranian. And so he connected me to a local organization, and they provided me with housing. <laughs> Literally the first person she saw. <laughs> the first person she saw and walked up and said, I'm going to go walk up to that guy was an Iranian-American police officer working at LAX. I mean, just incredible. And, you know, about a month later, her mom was released from detention and uh, released into the United States to continue with her immigration proceedings and traveled to L.A. Now, it's amazing some of the things that kind of worked out in their favor, but there's still a lot of hardships. I was messaging her recently uh, through translating apps, and she said they've got a place to stay. They are reunited, but they still don't have a – she doesn't have a work permit. She has to wait a few months before she can even apply for a work permit, so very much struggling. Uh, but her resilience is clear. She said to me when I told her, you don't know anybody in Los Angeles. Why don't you go to Dallas? She said, don't you know, Father Brian, Iranians are smart people. We figure things out. And, you know, I continue to pray for Hajar and for her son and mother that they can continue to figure things out and just find myself amazed at how this little connection all started with just this personal curiosity at a migrant from Iran at the HRC with the help of Google Translate. 
that's one example of an opportunity of saying yes to someone. Uh, Joe, you want to share a, a story with us that that uh, happened to you recently? Yeah. So I'm thinking of kind of a series of episodes in uh, in, in Casa de Migrante in Reynosa. Luis, this um, this this wonderful man uh, from, from Venezuela, was there, and he came up to us one day, asking us to talk with a teenage girl, and we'll call her Maria uh, for, for, for this. And she had been recently released from, uh, from, from her kidnappers, but her family was still being held. And the reason that uh, Luisa presented us to us was that, well, her family, you know, had uh, their CBP-1 appointment, but she was the only one that wasn't uh, still being held by the cartel, so how do we... Can she wait for them? Does she have to go now? And she really, she didn't want to cross without her family. You know, so this was the, this was the issue that was presented to us. Yeah, and it's difficult. I mean, so many people are, are waiting for CBP-1 appointments, uh, which is the way the U.S. wants you to enter the country by downloading the smartphone app and requesting these appointments. But what's happening sometime with these cases of kidnapping is that people are getting to the border even with an appointment and then being kidnapped and missing their appointments because they're being held when this happens. And families are having to make all kinds of tough decisions for this. For example, Maria's family, they're being held and they have to pay a ransom for every member of the family to leave. And so uh, the first one of the first payments that they made was able to free Maria because I think they wanted her. They had to make these tough decisions, like who's the first to go? And so as a teenage girl, I think they just thought there's there's too high a risk for yeah. sexual assault, for example. So let's make sure she gets out as, as quickly as possible, even if that means separating her from her family. And then, okay, she's out in time to get to their appointment, but she's now an unaccompanied minor because she's under 18. And so the, co- the situation is complex. Mm-hmm. So we run into her at the shelter as she's awaiting her family. And... You know, you give her just the advice that was needed, you know, the, the, the counsel, the proper counsel for, you know, how to go forward with this, that, you know, you can wait for your family. That's right. And they can yeah. cross later than their appointment date together as a family if they miss the appointment for these reasons. So there are accommodations for this kind of a situation. But as that conversation kind of went on, well, she was kind of almost kind of unresponsive in a way, uh, like like this kind of this wall had kind of built up because she was, she was clearly preoccupied. You know, there, there's very clearly other stuff going on. For She's just not thinking just about appointments. I mean, like her family is still being held, you know. And that's kind of when kind of felt this, this kind of impulse to say something to her. And, uh, and I tell her, you know, you survived your kidnapping. And you can't do that without some kind of a fire in you, without some sort of inner strength. And that doesn't come from nowhere. Your family has that fire too. They have that inner strength. And we can trust that, you know? And uh, after saying that, you know, that's when, you know, the tears come in her eyes, you know, and, and she, and the wall starts to to kind of break down a little bit. And we, you know, I sat with her for, you know, an hour or so, and we were, you know, we continued talking, and sometimes we were just sitting in silence, and then we were talking about other things, you know, like, 
Venezuelan food and whatnot. One of your favorite topics. <laughs> asking people about the crazy food from their country. So it's, I it's do a enjoy. Joke I do. It, it's a it's a classic. You know, people love it. People love food. <laughs> people love crazy stuff. Yeah, and um, and as the weeks kind of went by, you know, we became closer. You know, and uh, and as her family, you know, bit by bit was released. Um. That's right. She had one family member released a, then another, a couple weeks later, another. and then others late. I mean, it was yeah, it was a pro- whole process. And so, so we, we got we got closer and closer, you know, with with the, not just with her, but like with with the family. And then one day when we were at the uh, HRC, the Humanitarian Rescue Center in McAllen, you know, I'm talking to this one person, and out of nowhere, you know, <laughs> there she is with her family. And you know, we we hug, and I I about lose my stuff and cry. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's a be- a beautiful moment of relief, right? I mean, yeah. you, you know, we had known her in Mexico; it had been this long wait. You knew what she'd gone through, and now all of a sudden, you're seeing her in the United States. Like they've made it through that missed appointment and through that kidnapping. Mm-hmm. But this 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 sense of of closeness, you know, to this family. Um, honestly, I don't think it would have happened without taking that risk to talk about that interior strength that she has. Because here's the thing, like, I didn't know her. I didn't know her family. I knew nothing about her, her family, nothing about their relationship. None of that. None of that at all. And I feel like normally I wouldn't really want to say, I wouldn't want to presume things about someone's family of origin or anything like that. But like in this moment, feeling this kind of this invitation, this call to to say that and say, I don't know her, but I know God does. You know, and I and I care about her, but I can't care about her more than God cares about her. So I'm just gonna have to say yes and take the risk. And I'm glad I did, for sure. That's great. It's beautiful to say yes and take that risk. And thanks for saying yes to to share this story with our podcast listeners. As I understand, it, it's not actually the first time you've said yes to sharing this story. Isn't that isn't that right, Joe? <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Technically, it's not. Yeah. I was in uh, El Paso uh, last week mm-hmm. or so, and I made the inadvisable decision to just drive there from here. Joe, Texas is a really big state. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I don't know if our listeners yeah. know that. It's like, oh, Brownsville, El Paso, they're both in Texas. Okay, yeah. They're 12 hours <laughs> apart. I mean, yeah. You could drive from, from Boston and get down to Atlanta in the same time it takes us to get from Brownsville to El Paso. <laughs> so, so I hit the road at like 3.30 a.m. I drive 12 hours, and there's this group from St. Louis over there, and they want me to give a talk like that evening <laughs> like so which you'd been preparing even, for a few weeks right <laughs> yeah like so they're like you're gonna you're gonna talk right and i'm kind of like what are you talking about i'm just here for refried beans you know this dinner you know kind of like want me to give a talk and then they go and joe's coming to go here's going to talk about you know his stuff on the border and uh, i was just kind of like i am this close to just seeing sounds. <laughs> like, like, I have had no rest. You're a little tired from and, this long drive, early start, yeah. long drive. And you want to give me a microphone <laughs> right now to talk about something that I have not at all prepared? <laughs> not the best of ideas on the surface. Yeah. But, but like, saying yes. Saying, saying yes. yes to the moment. Mm-hmm. And full circle. Yes. No, it was, I'm sure uh, the talk, of course, went very well. And, 
you know, these are a couple of examples that we have in our ministry of, of saying yes to things as they present themselves. We're going to hear a great story from Pastor Abraham Barberi, who in his own way has said yes time and again to these opportunities in ministry that have just taken off and transformed the work and ministry that he's doing. So from hip-hop, from ministering to people in the hip-hop community to working with migrants and asylum seekers, it's a great interview. So stay tuned for that coming up next. We are excited to welcome to this week's episode Pastor Abraham Barberi, who is the leader at the Comunidad Esencia Urbana in Matamoros and also the director of Ministerio Una Misión. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Father Brian. Um, yeah. Excited to be here. Great to have you with us. Maybe as an opening question, you could just give us a little bit of your background of what brought you here to the valley and what uh, is the work and mission that you do in Matamoros. Well, um, I was born in Mexico, and I was taken to Houston when I was a teenager. I'm 55 years old now. I went to Houston with my mom, um, started going to church, got involved in church, um, went to, uh, came to Matamoros in 1999. I was invited by a friend of mine. to. I was just a translator. He wanted me to help him translate. So I came to Matamoros in 1999, and ever since, just... You know, my heart stayed in, in Matamoros and eventually went to seminary, got ordained to the ministry and all that good stuff and kept coming to Matamoros. And eventually in 2009, my f- wife and my kids decided to move to the border and, and become uh, missionaries. That's great. So you came here in 2009 to be missionaries. Uh, what, uh, so what does the mission of a missionary in Matamoros look like? Well, within our denomination, um, a missionary would be someone who would do church planting. That was that was my main job description. And also, I was assigned to start a uh, Bible school, a seminary. So um, that was my what, what I was supposed to be doing. And also, uh, organize outreach events specifically for teenagers and young adults. Now, as I understand it, you have some uh, background in hip-hop. So where did that come into play in this church building and bringing people into the community? Well, when we moved to the, to the border in 2009, that's when the cartel wars were happening in, in Matamoros, all over Mexico. And Matamoros was really bad, and, and the cartels were recruiting a lot of teenagers and young adults. And we were trying to get them to, to go to church or at least to walk away from that, you know, uh, from the cartels. So we started thinking, okay, how do we reach out to the teenagers and young adults? And we would go to them, literally. We, we, and, and, and where my church is, is kind of like in the hood, you would say, in Matamoros. So that area is surrounded by a lot of cartel influence and presence. So we knew where to find them because you could see them. Back in, the, back in those days, they were in their trucks with bulletproof vests and machine guns and all that. So we, we would walk up to them and bring them wa- bottled waters, tacos, and invite them to church, you know, that kind of thing, you know. Wow. And they were, they were okay with it. They, they never acted mean or anything. 
Anyways, that didn't work. They didn't want to go to church. <laughs> that would take the water take and the, the water, tacos, but, but they didn't want to yeah, go free, to church. For free tacos. I mean, why not? <laughs> so we thought, how do we, how do we reach out to them? And we just thought, how about if we do some music concerts? And I found out that they uh, like hip-hop. So we started doing these hip-hop concerts around that, that area, you know, in different parks and communities close to the, um, close to not just to the cartel guys, but the teenagers, you know. And we started having this hip-hop concerts, and we would get 30, 40 kids. And, um, but the thing is, we were having mostly hip-hop rappers that, that were Christians, and then eventually I thought, you know, we're going to invite some non-Christian rappers so they can bring their friends. So, yeah, we did that. And next thing you know, we were getting 100 kids, 200, 500, wow. 1,000, 2,000 oh, kids. And then, yeah, we did this concerts for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And eventually some of those um, rappers, well-known rappers in Matamoros and Tamaulipas, non-Christian rappers, uh, started going to church. And... I baptized quite a few of them, and um, and they wanted to go to church, but most of them have have uh, had had and still have uh, tattoos, and they just dress differently. You know, they mm-hmm. look differently, and 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 some of the young adults and teenagers also wanted to go to church, but when they would go to church, they weren't welcome because of the way they looked or their background. So we started praying about it, and we thought, you know, maybe. We, we need to start a church just for them. It was mostly, you know, young teenagers and young adults and rappers. And, and, um, and they, uh, every Sunday, uh, we would worship the Lord with hip-hop music. They started writing their own songs. And, and yeah, that's how we started. Now, at some point, though, you got involved with migrant ministry. So what was that story like? How did, how did that Kind of come to play. Well, as you know, Matamoros and all border towns always been migrant towns for decades. But the difference before 2017 was that you could not see them. They were kept in stash houses uh, by, you know, the coyotes, the cartels, because they were coming to the border to cross the river. But that changed in 2017. I crossed the border back and forth because I live in Brownsville now. I used to live in Matamoros, now we live in Brownsville. So I go at least five days out of the week to Matamoros. And one day I was crossing the border back into Brownsville, and I saw this um, group of people right there at the International Bridge, right before you go into the U.S. Uh, side, uh, in the International Bridge. And they were like, they looked like they were camping out. And I, I, I thought, I wonder what they're doing here. So I stopped. I said, hey, man, what, what's going on? And, and long story short, uh, there were Cubans seeking asylum. So, well, it was actually it was December, and it was like today, kind of rainy and cold. So I called my church, and uh, we, came, we came back and brought some, you know, food and blankets and stuff like that. Went back the next day, and, and they were gone. I was like, oh, great. But then the next day I went back and there was another group and another group and another group. And this is what I think that, that happened. News travels south. Hey, you know, you don't have to come to the border 
and cross the river illegally anymore. You could actually seek asylum. So how did, how did, how, how do we get, how did I get involved in, in asylum seeker ministry? It was just, we just ran into it. It wasn't, I don't want to say, oh yeah, we, we were looking to serve asylum seekers. I wish that was true, but it just happened. You know, it just, and we thought, okay, let's, let's help them out in one way and another. As, and as the groups got bigger and bigger, uh, we got more and more involved. We started bringing food every day or every other day. And what is funny is that now I had this ex-cartel members, ex-drug addicts uh, in my church, and they were coming to serve asylum seekers. And we used to go over there and bring food, and they would rap for the asylum seekers and, and all that. It was fun. And um, so then the group just grew, and, you know, the asylum seekers just kept coming and coming, and, and it just turned into this huge refugee camp and we just kept helping out that's yeah it's incredible it 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 just happened i love that like you know sometimes sometimes you know you might call it coincidence if you weren't a person of faith but us as people of faith might call it providential that you know that that it just happened but that's because god kind of presented us this opportunity and we said yes to that invitation right so I, i wonder if you could just reflect from from your own as a pastor as a person of faith what has it meant to you to do this ministry, both with the former cartel members, the hip-hop community, and also migrants? Like, what, what, what part of your faith impels you in this, in this ministry? Well, you know, some years ago, I'd, I guess I was a very religious man, and, and, I, and I mean that in, in a bad way. You know, I was, I was always focused on all this... Uh, religious things and you know you got to do this and you got to do that and you can't do that and you know just just uh you have to dress this particular way and you have to go to church this day and this other day and which is great but then one day i don't know i was i was uh listening to some guy and talking about uh you know our faith and and even though I had read this passage many times, which this, guy, with this young man comes to Jesus and said, hey, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And, and Jesus said, well, to love God and to love others. And somehow you just hit me. Man, that's the greatest commandment, to love God and to love others. And I'm always focusing on other things instead of loving God and, and loving others. So th- that began to impact our ministry. So we started thinking, okay, if that's the greatest commandment, that's what we're going to do. We're going to love God, and, you know, that can mean many things, you know. Pray, read the Bible, etc. Yeah. But also, you know, to love others, that means, you know, what Jesus says in Matthew 25, and, and you know what Matthew 25, 31 says, and on, that, you know, feed the hungry people, give water to the thirsty people, and welcome Immigrants. So, um, so we, we decided that that's what we we're going to do. So I- even before that, we started working with asylum seekers. We were working at, at the slums in, in Matamoros. We, we've been doing that for years. And there's, a, there's a kind of a simplicity to that. I think sometimes we can kind of fall into the trap of as, a, as churches, as parishes, of trying to think, okay, what's our mission statement going to be? You know, we really, really overthink it, you know, yeah, <laughs> whereas, you yeah. know. Jesus has given us one. <laughs> the yeah. kind of like, go and make disciples of all nations. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the immigrant, et cetera, et cetera, where it's kind of like, Jesus kind of did the brain work for us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he did. Yeah. 
one point you opened up a shelter over in Matamoros, Dulce Refugio. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the story of opening up that space and welcoming people in. Yeah. Um, and March of 2021, but um, actually, let's go back some. And uh, fe- January of 2021, the Biden administration uh, promised that we're going to close all the refugee camps alongside the, 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 the border, specifically the one in Matamoros, because it was the biggest at that time. And what that meant, what that meant is that he was going to allow them to cross into the U.S., yeah, everyone were, at the all, river at the, at the refugee camp. Yeah, and, all asylum seekers in the Remain and, in Mexico policy, but waiting and, for their asylum claim. Now they could enter the U.S. and wait for their asylum hearings in the U.S., right? But only those at the refugee camp first. They started with mm-hmm. those in the refugee camp, and okay. then and eventually those who were in the MPP program. Okay. So, uh, so that that transition started. You know, they were sending twenty five a day. You know, they were at the time I don't know eighteen fifteen hundred people at the refugee camp. Long story short, um, those three months pass by, January, the start of the process, March comes, and I think it was March 5th, I don't remember the exact date, they had to close the camp. So I, I, made, I, make it to the, I made it to the refugee camp, and to make the long, long, long story short, there were 59 asylum seekers that couldn't go across the border, but they, want, they wanted them out of the refugee camp, and they were going to take them to a shelter or a hotel. They didn't want to leave the asylum seekers. They, 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 they said, no, we're not going anywhere. We're staying here. So since I kind of knew most of them there, because I was literally there almost every day. You know, we had COVID. My church closed for almost nine months because the Mexican government made us close our churches. And our Bible school was closed because of COVID. So I was like, well, I'm just going to go to the camp, right, and, and, and be there. So long story short, I knew a lot of them. And they said that they wanted to talk to me, to the INM, the Mexican Immigration. They wanted to talk to Pastor Abraham. So I make it there, and uh, the, the U.S. consulate people are there because I knew them. Uh, the INM people are there, Mexican Immigration. Um, I don't even remember who else was there, but a lot of people were there trying to get them out, <laughs> trying to convince them to go to the shelter or a hotel. They don't want to go. So they're like, okay, they don't want to talk to us. They want to talk to you. So I go and talk to them, and, and I say, well, what's going on? They're like, well, we don't want to go because if we leave the camp, we, we feel they're going to deport us back or something's going to happen. So I go back, so they don't want to leave. They want to stay here. You'll leave them here. Like, no, they have to go. I ended up taking them to, to my church because um, they didn't want to go to the shelter or the hotel, and they said, okay, we, this is what we're going to do. We'll go to your shelter. I said, well, I don't have a shelter. And, and what they meant by that is that when it would get really, really cold and, and would rain really bad, I would take some of the women and children for a couple of days to my church, a temporary shelter. And then after the rain and the cold would go away, I would bring them back to the refugee camp. And I, we did that a few times. We didn't do it very often. But in their minds, they, they thought I had a shelter. So everybody hears that, that, that they want to go to my shelter. So they're like, please take him to your shelter, you know. I said, okay, I'll take him. I don't have a shelter, but I'll take him. But how long is it going to take for them to go across the water? And that day, the, uh, the Jewish council was there, and, and she said, Abraham, uh, give us two weeks, and I'll make sure they go across the border. I said, okay. So 
we have a we have a deal. I, I take him to my my church Bible Institute. We turn it into a, a shelter, temporary shelter, and within two weeks they're gone. I mean, they they went across the border. The, the U.S. consul called me almost every day. Hey, um, uh, two we'll go today, ten tomorrow, and and you know we, we're going to make sure they all go across the border. But this is what happened. Um, people would new asylum seekers arrive at the refugee camp, and it was closed. And they would say, what happened to the camp? Well, you know, they closed it down, but there's a new camp, a new shelter. Some guy named Abraham, some <laughs> pastor guy, and this, it's open, that's, he took the, the asylum seekers, and now that's where you're supposed to go. So within two weeks, we had almost 400 asylum seekers staying there. And the thing is, at that time, they were allowing mostly uh, people that were displaced in Oaxaca, Guerrero, and Chiapas, indigenous communities. So these moms with seven kids would show up to our church and, like, we don't have nowhere to go. And, like, okay, well, let's just stay here for, for a week, okay? <laughs> And like I said, you know, they, they just kept coming, and, and I, we just couldn't say no. And next thing you know, we have 400 people in our shelter. The other 59 are gone. <laughs> so we just thought, okay, what do we do? So we just kept it open. And we were open for, for two years. And in that process, we had close to 4,000 asylum seekers. And thanks to the Lord, we were able to um, get them all across the border legally. I think of the things that, you know, Jesus tells us to do and the things, the the directions that come to us in the scriptures, or we, some of them we've already talked about, you know, those commandments to uh, to, to, to service and to, 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 to love. So, like, we, we work in this life, you know, we, we strive in this life, we, we suffer and we have joys in this life, and we try to make this life better and better, and yet... Our hope is not in this life. It's our, we, we place our hope in the next life, mm-hmm. in, 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 the, in that world to come, in that new heaven, that new earth. And so I wonder, are there any particular images, particular ways of thinking, particular visions, ways of understanding heaven that particularly move you and speak to you? When you think of heaven... What do you think of? When I think of heaven, I think of, of Jesus, right? I, I, I believe that when we go to heaven, we're going to see the Lord. And to me, that's heaven, being with the Lord. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 25, 31, you know, when you do these things, you know, he, he tells the disciples, hey, welcome to the kingdom, to heaven, right? Because this was prepared for you. And it was prepared for you because you fed the hungry, you gave water, you gave water to the thirsty, you helped the asylum seekers, you clothed the naked, you uh, helped the sick, you w- visited those in prison, and the disciples said, wait a minute, when, when did we do that? And, and Jesus said, when you did it to the least of my brothers, right? So in my mind, is every time we see someone like that, we encounter Jesus, right? We encounter the Lord. When, when, when I see someone in need that is thirsty, I'm like, man, that's Jesus, right? And, and, and the way he explains that parable. So 
when we do our ministry, you know, uh, we always have this mind, especially, you know, evangelical missionaries are like, we bring in God to Mexico. Now, God is already there. <laughs> yeah. Jesus is already there. Part of heaven is the kingdom is already there. And what we need to do, at least I thought, and, and, and I always tell myself, I just need to find what Jesus is already there and connect. So <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but heaven is to me is being with the Lord. And, 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 and in this, and, and this earth, when we help the needy, we're kind of experiencing that, right? In our own uh, congregation, uh, our order, the, the Society of Jesus, we, we talk about finding God in all things. Yeah. This recognition that God is already present there. And it's just kind of like, we just got to find it. We, we got to be, and how do you find it? You just, you just open yourself to it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, all right, God, show me. Mm-hmm. Show me where you are, you know, because you're already right. here. And I think you're a great example to that of us, of, of the ability to find God in all things. And that means certainly in the poor, the needy, the asylum seekers, migrants and refugees. It's also finding God in creative ways like hip-hop music uh, and all these different forms, right? Because God can be found in everything. And so just want to name and acknowledge that you do a great job of doing that. And uh, I think it's a great uh, inspiration to our, to our listeners as well. So we want to thank you, Pastor Abraham, for joining us on this episode. Thank you. Well, that wraps up our episode for this week. We're grateful to Pastor Abraham Barberi for joining us. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to hear more about the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. You can visit our website at delcamino.org. If you're curious about Jesuit life or know someone who is, visit beajesuit.org to learn more about a religious vocation to the Society of Jesus. This podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada in the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. We'll see you next time on the Jesuit Border Podcast. Que Dios los bendiga.